for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than a precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For is the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who seek the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to glorify your name this morning. You are magnificent. May your goodness and your grandeur humble us this morning as we come to your word. May we be those who fear you and therefore have the beginning of wisdom as we look at the wisdom literature this morning. As you taught us, those who have determined to obey will understand your words. And so, Lord, this morning we come to you with the intention to be obedient to what you command us. We come to you with the intention of being transformed by your Spirit through your Word. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us hearts to receive what you have spoken and that you would prepare us by your Spirit. Lord, we have many concerns, stresses, struggles, Sometimes we, we only even know a part of what's going on with each other because we move on stoically and keep things to ourselves. Forgive us for that, O oh Lord, but also we lift up each of these things, whether the things known or unknown, those who are ill and recovering, those who are looking at very difficult times in their life. Father, we pray that you would be their comfort. And we also ask that you would help your church to be your church in caring for one another, that with Christ as the head, we would be the hands and feet that do the work. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us opportunity to love one another as you have loved us. Father, I pray that you would give us boldness to share the good news of the gospel with those around us. And we ask that you would do this in us for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Ecclesiastes is not a lot of people's favorite book. It has some difficulties. It's, it, I mean, this morning sounds a little bit pessimistic, doesn't it? Um, our text this morning is all about the limitations of human wisdom and understanding. 
which is pretty interesting considering that this is wisdom literature. And so we're reading wisdom literature that's telling us that uh, there's a limitation to wisdom. And so Ecclesiastes teaches us that wise living requires recognizing the limits of wisdom and understanding. And so first, we, there's a few things this morning. You're going to get some more Bible college for free this morning. And I, I actually believe that unless you're going into something that requires a degree, if you need to go to Bible college, it's because your church has failed you. Uh, first, we should work to define wisdom as a category. God has designed everything. And so he has a plan, a design for everything in creation, and the wisdom literature of the Bible calls us to live according to that design. And it, it calls living according to God's design wisdom. So if you want a, a category of wisdom, wisdom is living according to what is real. Knowing enough, having that skill. And so there are many kinds of wisdom but wisdom as a whole is the understanding of how to live skillfully in the light of the reality which exists. And so Exodus 29.3 calls for wise craftsmen to whom God had given a spirit of wisdom to fashion robes for the high priest. These were men, it says, who had the wisdom of how to assemble fabric and other materials into suitable garments for their purpose. This is wisdom, knowing how things work. Knowing how God's designed. And then in Exodus 31.3, Moses is instructed to summon Bezalel, the son of Uri, to fashion articles for the tabernacle because God had filled him with the Spirit of God for wisdom, which our ESV translates their ability. So that, that word ability is actually in Hebrew, wisdom. And intelligence and knowledge as well. So this is this, to say that Bezalel knew the reality of how wood can be worked and the properties of metal, and how they can be heated and formed, and the cutting and setting of precious stones. These are all called wisdom. Some understanding of how God has designed things to work in His creation. So a fool does things in whichever way they want, and they expect a positive outcome. But the wise recognize that there is a way established by God, and they seek to live according to reality. What is actually quite humorous in the remaining half of Ecclesiastes is that it reads almost like the book of Proverbs, but with what seems like a decidedly pessimistic bent. There are Proverbs here which are almost identical, like Proverbs 21, uh, 22, one, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, which is much like uh, chapter 7, verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. But then it is strangely followed by better the day of death than the day of birth. So, along with this gloomy flavor, Ecclesiastes also interrupts the list of Proverbs and advice sections with a repetition of the earlier theme we found all the way through the first half, it's all hevel anyways. It's this word hevel, which means vanity or fleeting, mist, smoke, it's all going away. And so we get this wisdom literature with a, a reminder every once in a while, but this is fleeting. This is hevel. And so our passage this morning marks the center of the book, as well as a transition of the primary focus. We leave behind the search for meaning and the hevel nature of human efforts, and into the second half of the book, which focuses on proverbial advice, intermixed with reminders that even wisdom has severe limitations in this hevel world. This is not a message unique to Ecclesiastes. 
but it finds agreement in both the balance of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some things cannot be known because God has hidden them from his creatures. This is not unique to Ecclesiastes that there are limitations to wisdom. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So there are severe limitations to what we can know and understand as humans, but God reveals enough of his character that we may fear him and enough of his will that we may obey in response. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence which is in entire agreement with the conclusion of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So God has revealed wonderful things of his wisdom to us in his word, and most importantly, he has clearly revealed everything we need to know in order to keep his commandments, but many other things we cannot know or understand. And so people are right to say there are things in the Bible that we don't fully understand. People are right to say that there's, there's mysteries and there's, there's different ideas and we don't really know. But you know, we uh, progressives are wrong when they say that we can't know enough to know how to obey the Word of God. The Bible tells us over and over again, we have sufficient knowledge, it is made clear to us through the Word of God that we can know sexual ethic. It is clear to us that we can know gender roles. It's clear to us how to obey the law of God. God has graciously revealed this. Secret things belong to God. But the things that are revealed to us belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the works of his law. He has granted everything to us pertaining to life and godliness. And Ecclesiastes ends, fear God and keep his commandments. So remember, this is the book of the Bible that's going to spend the most time questioning our ability to understand. It's going to say, you can't know it all. And, and it's all hevel anyway, but it clearly says at the end of it, what can we know? We can know enough of God's character to fear him and enough of his will to obey what he has commanded. And so we begin in chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is the introductory section to the new theme. And it asks two questions, verse 12, for who knows what is good for man and who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And so these rhetorical questions will be answered in the remainder of our passage this morning. I'll give you a spoiler though, only God. Who can decide what is good for man? God. Who knows what's going to happen after? God. The main point is that we cannot determine what is good for us because we do not know the future outcome of the events which take place in our lives. But God knows, verse 10, we are named and we are known. 
Now, in, in Hebrew, to name something is an idiom meaning to designate, appoint, or determine the destiny. It goes beyond mere foreknowledge and speaks of divine predetermination. He's saying that the course of humanity is set by naming, and humanity is known. And it is because God knows us and has named our future, it is entirely futile and completely absurd to try to resist God and to ignore the way he has ordered things. Utter foolishness. It is one of the great delusions of our time that the exertions of human power can change the shape of reality. In fact, there's even heresies in churches that say that human exertion, human will, human faith can change the shape of reality. This is not so. This is a whole book of the Bible to tell us that that is a foolish thought. As I mentioned earlier, the first half of Ecclesiastes focuses on the futility of all human efforts. Ecclesiastes 3.14 is quickly becoming one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. And now, verse 11 transitions us into the theme for the second half. So the first half, we have the futility of human efforts. The second half, the futility of words and knowledge. The more words, the more hot air, and no lasting gain. The advantage gained by wisdom is limited by death and, and all the other elements we've already mentioned. And so the second question, or sorry, the question, the first question, who knows what is good? Verse 12, only God knows what is good in any final and comprehensive way because to really know what is good for us in any ultimate sense would require knowing what comes after us. Do you understand this? To know how things work out is the only way to determine whether something's truly good or not. To really know what is good, we would have to know our future destiny and humans cannot know this. Ecclesiastes 10.14 says, A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The rhetorical question being nobody. God, God doesn't even tell us everything about what's going to happen. He does tell us some, and we're going to get to that. So after telling us that we don't know what is good for us, not really, Ecclesiastes begins a series of Proverbs which explore the question of what is good. Now, many of these maxims are, are very similar to other biblical and traditional ancient Near Eastern proverbs. They emphasize the importance of a good reputation, being open to wisdom and correction from wise people, avoiding anger, and the importance of patience and self-control. These are all very common in the proverbs and in other uh, extra-biblical proverbs in the ancient Near Eastern culture. But what we have to understand as we come to this is it's not merely a simple list of proverbial wisdom. These proverbs sum up the value of wisdom, while others are meant to show us that wisdom is of only limited value and nothing that can be wholly relied upon. And so there's a middle path here to be walked between idolizing wisdom and despising it. The wise know the limits of their wisdom. And so we have a list of Proverbs, and, you know, this is why I haven't preached through the book of Proverbs yet, because it is uh, beyond my ability. And so I started this week to look into this long list of Proverbs. It was uh, at first a nightmare, and then I believe that uh, 
God allowed me to see what he was speaking through this. So follow with me here. Chapter 7, we'll read verses 1 through 4. I'm sorry I messed up the slides big time. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. This is the word of the Lord. And so after asking, who knows what is good, these and the following Proverbs tell us what is good ten times in the Hebrew. Although in our English translations, it's often translated better. So this is still, it's because more good just isn't very good grammar in English. But it's, this word good is ten times here in these Proverbs. So it's just ask the question, who can know what's good because they don't know what's to come? And then we have ten, or not ten Proverbs, ten times it says what is good. So a good name is better than riches. What's funny is good there is not the Hebrew for good. There's a specific word for a good name, but better is good. It's, so a good name is more good than riches, which makes sense and agrees with traditional wisdom literature, right? But the, better the day of death than the day of birth? Better mourning than feasting? Better sorrow than laughter? Ask yourselves, are these true statements in your mind? So we might need a crash course in proverbial wisdom in order to make sense of these. Again, this is your uh, second Bible college lesson. Proverbs are wisdom sayings which each capture a tiny cross-section of the truth. And so being very short, one of the features of Proverbs is that they do not provide comprehensive teaching, but truthfully point to the total truth of a matter. So a a classic example, so you can understand what I'm saying, is the two back-to-back sayings in Proverbs 26, 4, and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So if we're just, if we take this as comprehensive teaching, are you supposed to answer a fool or not? Very confusing. Now, they seem to be contradictory if we take them as comprehensive teaching. But they, they are not contradictory at all. Both are true, but contrasting statements which point to the complete truth of the situation. If you argue with a fool, you are at risk of being foolish. If you don't argue with a fool, they might think that they are being wise. And so if we meditate on these statements, a number of truths are revealed. So some that came to me are, number one, any interaction with a fool is fraught with pitfalls. Whether you do or whether you don't, it's not a great situation. Deal with a fool at your peril. Secondly, noticing that someone is saying something foolish doesn't mean that I'm in the clear when I answer them. And when I am tempted to answer a fool, I might want to consider how much I care about that person. Am I willing to risk looking like a fool so that they don't continue to think that they walk in wisdom? So so we could keep 
thinking on these truths, and more and more wisdom could be added to us as we meditate on God's Word. So Proverbs are true, but true in a limited scope, so we must understand the context. And they're, they're short, so they all are true, they're the Word of God, but they point to the greater truth. And you, you need quite often a lot of them to get a full picture of the truth. So in Proverbs, you can't just take one proverb and be like, I've got it, this is the truth. You have to get the whole book and meditate on where all these contrasting Proverbs are giving a picture of what wisdom is. I, I was wrestling with this this week. We're going to teach on Proverbs, and the point of Proverbs is to put things in a way that fools can't understand them. And so we have these Proverbs that require meditation and, and the Spirit of God to help us to understand and gain wisdom by fearing God, and then we try to do a sermon where we explain them all and just hand it over to you. But the point with a proverb is to, to meditate on it, to think on what wisdom is God giving to us. So we have to know the, the scope and understand the context of a proverb. So when is the day of death better than the day of birth? When is mourning, and fe- mourning better than feasting and sorrow better than laughter? When is, when, it is when, sorry, the living see that death is the end of all mankind, verse 2, and lay it to heart. So it tells us the context right here. Death is better than birth, or the day of death better than the day of birth, mourning better than feasting, sorrow better than laughing, because then the living see that death is the end of all mankind and lay it to heart. Psalm 90, verse 12, asks God, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So the the author of Ecclesiastes is not depressed or suicidal. He's not recommending that we love death more than life or that we dress like gods and be obsessed with funerals. He is saying that there is a certain context in which these things are better. In this limited context, sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. So the goal is joy. Sometimes God uses sorrow to bring about joy in our lives, especially if we consider that death is the end of all mankind and lay it to heart. By sadness, the heart is made glad. So part of the wisdom required to enjoy the good life is to recognize the reality of death and live accordingly. And we could honestly meditate on that truth for hours, but everything I've explained so far would have been immediately apparent to the original audience. The author's main point isn't in the truth of the individual Proverbs, but in how they all relate to the point of the introduction. The introduction is humans cannot determine what is good for them. And then we have these Proverbs... We would never prefer a funeral to a birthday party. We would never choose mourning in our lives rather than feasting. We would never pray and ask God to give us sorrow instead of laughter. Because we don't know when, by sadness, our hearts would be made glad. See, the wisdom literature might tell us, do this and things will work out well. Ecclesiastes points out that it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you do something really stupid, it turns out to be really painful, and God works it out to bring great joy into your life. But you can't choose that. You don't know how it's going to work out. 
don't go out and hit your hand with a hammer. That's stupid. But if you accidentally hit your hand with a hammer, that might be good for you. Who knows? My brother-in-law fell off a house. It changed the direction of his life entirely. It was so good for him. There's no wisdom in the Bible that tells you, go throw yourself off a house. That would be stupid. You don't know how it's going to work out. You just could be brain dead. Do you understand what this is teaching us? This is wonderful, life-giving stuff here in Ecclesiastes, which we often overlook because it's a little bit difficult. We don't know how it's going to work out, so we don't know what's good. So then the author gives us these proverbs. First, he gives one off the top that agrees with traditional wisdom literature. So we're like, yeah, that makes sense. A good name is better than riches. And then it's like, and death is better than life, and sorrow is better than happiness. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it throws it all out in the head. Well, in what context are these things? So it's not always saying that funerals are always better than birthday parties. There can be some really great birthday parties. It's saying in the context that we see that death is the end of all mankind, and that gives us wisdom. Because we would never choose bad things, which is smart because we don't know how they would work out, um, God chooses. God knows. Paul writes to the church in Corinth about the grief they had caused them in 2 Corinthians 7, 9. He says, as it is, I rejoice. He's rejoicing me, not because you grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So God allows some really hard things, terrible things that we would never choose for ourselves. We would never say, that's a good thing for me. I can think of so many times in my life that this was like this. But it led to repentance. So good news, it was actually good. It was good that my truck kept breaking down all those times. Because we do not know the outcome of sorrows, sickness, mourning, and trials of many various kinds, we would never choose what is hard or painful. But God knows he has already named what will be and knows what man is. No one is able to dispute God's sovereign will and control over his reality. So it may be cliche, but our disappointments are often God's appointments. Some things that are good for us may be difficult and distasteful. And positive character traits often result from difficult and painful experiences. So the wisdom literature isn't telling us that bad is good and good is bad and you should cause bad things in your life. It's saying you don't know. Wisdom is limited in this aspect. Human wisdom, though good, has severe limitations. Continues in verse 5, chapter 7, verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. That's that word hevel again. It's already been used five times. Here we dive back into traditional wisdom. So we started with this traditional wisdom that says, here's a thing that is better than another thing, good, more good. Now we dive back into traditional wisdom, which often commends discipline and the rebuke of the wise. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Wisdom welcomes discipline and rebuke because it understands the potential benefit. This was well-established traditional wisdom. But what is Ecclesiastes bringing to the table other than to merely repeat conventional wisdom? 
Here we have another example of something we would not choose for ourselves, a good that is unpleasant. Nobody wants to be rebuked. And yet the Proverbs are full of commendations to receive a rebuke because it's good for you. It's good to be disciplined. We don't like it, but it's good. And so this is a particularly effective illustration for the author because this was already readily accepted wisdom for the ancient audience. And in the right context, they knew a firm rebuke from someone wise is far better than the frivolity of fools whose laughter, it says, is like burning thorn bushes, which is that they would crackle and blaze spectacularly, but the fire is short-lived and doesn't provide enough heat to perform essential tasks like cooking. So you could get a good, lively fire that crackles a lot, but it wouldn't actually heat your food. So this is not a new proverb. This is an established wisdom that proves the author's main point. So do you see how all these proverbs work together? They are true, but each in their context pointing to the greater truth, which is the message the author's trying to get across. Our purpose is not to understand the fullness of what each of these proverbs can say. We could do a long excursion on each point of each of these sayings, but the wisdom of the proverbs is not passed on by the mentioning, but on careful and personal contemplation of God's truth which I recommend you do in your own time with, this, with these Proverbs. But our purpose this morning is to understand what the author is saying, how he is commenting on the limited ability of wisdom. And so to this end, the Proverbs get more specific as we move along. Verse 7, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Kind of seems out of left field, right? We've got these Proverbs, they don't seem connected to each other. But this is a key statement for the passage, a picture of the vulnerability of wisdom. On the one hand, oppression or extortion can cloud a person's judgment. On the other, a bribe will distort it. And so this is to say that the wise are not above suspicion. Who knows what factors influence the advice or the rebuke they may give. So a a skillfully wise inventor might develop some mechanism, but then under pressure from his investors or out of greed for monetary gain, he works in some planned obsolescence, designing his product to fail over time or giving it a need to be replaced. Or a brilliantly wise scientist might have the wisdom to make some compound or cure, but then personal gain introduces bias. He markets his product to more customers than could ever receive a benefit for the sake of his bottom line. So the the author's point is that even the wise are susceptible to corruption, and thereby their advice becomes foolishness. So there's a key vulnerability of wisdom is that it can be corrupted. The next series of Proverbs address another weakness of human wisdom, verses 8 and 9. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning... And the patience in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Now this is to say that truly wise behavior will be dictated by the way things turn out, rather than in their beginning or some other point in between. You know, nobody starts a treatment of antibiotics without an expectation of the way that it's going to end. Or surgery. We don't value how beneficial a surgery will be based on the cuts that are made at the beginning, but by the final healed-up process. So, 
Wise behavior is dictated by how things turn out rather than how they start. And since God has declared the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46.10, the end is better. Human perspective is limited by our time-bound nature and our inability to see beyond the horizons of our own existence. And God's purposes, however, extend across generations in history, and we humans cannot understand how all the various pieces fit together. And because of this, we cannot determine what is good for us in any ultimate sense. There is some opportunity for godly wisdom which causes us to fear God and obey His commands because He has told us how some of the things end up. But because humans lack full divine foresight, there is significant limitation to human understanding. A great example of this, uh, and you'd kind of have to know the history to get my point, but is the ecological disaster of Yellowstone National Park where so many of the attempts to sustain the wonders of the preserve ended up irreparably harming its ecology. We don't know how things will work out to the point that we often cause harm by trying to fix things. How we desperately need the wisdom of God. But things are so much more complex than we can ever imagine. We don't know the outworkings of every behavior and how things will work. And this is the point. We know how to obey God. That is enough. Then the uh, patience is next advocated here. Better to be patient than proud. To be quickly angered is a mark of a fool. Only a fool in his arrogance is quickly frustrated by circumstances because they have no understanding how they will work out. You see? Because we don't know how things will work out, it's quite foolish to be upset about our circumstance. It's quite foolish to be angry about how God has placed you because you don't know how it works out. It's foolishness. The preacher then sets aside the poetic and proverbial language to rebuke a saying that is probably as common now as it was back then, Ecclesiastes 7.10, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. But we are warned against this statement because it portrays a foolish attitude as well as complete ignorance of history. And because God has named it, the end is better than the beginning. And so if we long for former things, not that there weren't good times in history, don't get me wrong, but if we long for former things, it's because we fail to recognize that the direction God is taking us is towards good. People often remark on the terrible times to me, and I get asked all the time, are we in the end times because things are so bad? And, and granted, we are seeing things in Canada now, evil that we have never seen in our lifetimes. But our lives are short, and history is long. And so it's not from wisdom that we say, it's never been this bad. We, we have not yet seen here the evil that took place in Rome or Babylon Never mind communism under Stalin. Things have not just been messed up since the sexual revolution. The things have been jacked up since Eden. After exposing the limitations of wisdom, Ecclesiastes once again affirms that there are indeed benefits, albeit limited benefits, to seeking wisdom. Verse 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, 
and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So wisdom and wealth are good, and they do provide an advantage. Now remember, the Proverbs are true in their context. So it is not considered contradictory to the original audience that the author would say here that there is an advantage to wisdom with wealth, when earlier he said that there is no advantage to wealth, and then explained what wealth fails to accomplish. So in that context, he says wealth is meaningless. It doesn't accomplish a meaningful life. Now it says there is a value to wealth, which there is. So they're not contradictory. They're contrasting. They're both teaching the truth. So there's a balance here so that we know that Ecclesiastes recognizes the advantages of wisdom and wealth, even though he exposes their limits. There's also some Hebrew wordplay here because the term that is used metaphorically for protection, it's translated protection here in our English translation, is also used as a metaphor for short-lived. So a, a more literal translation would read, for the shadow of wisdom is like the shadow of money. So to be under the shadow or shade of something in the desert is to find protection. And so in the context of preserving life, which it is, the English translation is correct, but the choice of this term cannot be an accident. The ambiguity suggests that the protection of wisdom and wealth is an advantage, but a short-lived one, temporary and limited. So even in English, we should kind of get the sense of this when he says, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. What's he saying? There is some protection, but it's not a very good one. It's not a perfect protection. It's not long-lasting. If you've been following with us in Ecclesiastes, this would be clear. And so with the list of parables now concluded... The end of our passage brings us back to the big questions which were introduced in chapter 6. And this is why we know that all these Proverbs are meant to address these ideas that are introduced at the end and reiterated at the end. Ecclesiastes 7, 13 to 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God's work cannot be thwarted. Things do not go the way we want them to because God is God, not us. So verse 13 rephrases some of the most important statements in Ecclesiastes, and especially uh, chapter 3, 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Church, God has determined good for you through both what we would call good and what we would call bad. He has done it so that we can't know what will come after us. We don't know how the current situations of our life will work out. Only God knows. And he has done it, the Bible says, so that we will fear him. So the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is not for the purpose of changing what God has done, but to go along with what God has done. True wisdom, as I said, is to live according to the reality that exists. And so the wise advice offered here is to enjoy what we perceive to be good. This has been a message throughout uh, Ecclesiastes. Enjoy the day of prosperity. We should, the theme in Ecclesiastes all the way through has been that we should enjoy our food, drink, relationships, and even our work as gifts from God. Enjoy all the good things. 
But in the day of adversity, we should remember that God made the one as well as the other. He alone can determine what is good for us because we never know what comes next. Life will involve good and bad times. But Ecclesiastes assures us that both happen within the framework of God's providential oversight. We are encouraged to take advantage of opportunities to enjoy the present rather than living in anxiety about a future nobody can know, and yet one we know is set by God. God has sovereign rule over everything and will work everything to his own purpose for his glory and the good of his people, Romans 8.28. And we know. Are there many things we can't know? Absolutely. But what do we know? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Did you, did you find that in Ecclesiastes here? This is what the message is. God knows what's good. You don't. If you were to get all the things that you called good, things would be a disaster. The end would be terrible. But because God knows what is good and he sees the end from the beginning, he declares the end from the beginning, we know that we can trust God to work all things for good. Some experiences turn out in hindsight to be very different from how they initially appeared. And in the end, all of the unpleasant things, the sorrow, the tragedy, the mourning, the rebukes, will all positive, uh, contribute positively according to God's pervasive work of providence. And it's not as though we can always figure it out. It's not like we always go through a bad thing and we can look back and like, this is how God worked it all out to be a good thing. Sometimes we can, by God's grace. Other times we can't, as Ecclesiastes says. But because God's plan of salvation spans generations and involves incredibly complex events, which may all seem unrelated. Consider Joseph, whose brothers strip him, throw him into a pit without food or water, and then sell him as a slave. And then though he was faithful to his master in Egypt, he is again accused of unfaithfulness and thrown into a pit. Which of these things would you call good? Which of these would you choose or give thanks to God for? Yet in the end, Joseph recognized that though his brothers committed evil against him, Genesis 50, 20, God meant it for good. This account illustrates how God directs things behind the scenes so that what appears to be bad has the possibility for good. It is this inversion of the efforts of evil so that they ultimately produce good in the end, which Jesus points to in the Beatitudes of Matthew 5 and Luke 6. Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. See how Jesus is inverting what is meant for evil and saying, but for you it works out for good. Luke 6, 20 to 22, Blessed are you who are poor, For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. The blessed who mourn, 
are the same blessed people who are already invited into the wedding supper of the Lamb, Revelations 19.9. In the meantime, they already know that God has, Ephesians 1.3, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Jesus himself models what it is to live this blessed life. Jesus models this wisdom of Ecclesiastes. He lived a life firmly based on reality. He knew reality better than we do. And he lived life in that reality. He was undistracted from the narrow path by illusions or disillusion, but focused on obedience to God who is ultimate reality. Like Christ himself, we are invited to know liberation and joy in the midst of adversity and grief. Only then can we, James 1, 2-4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Father, we are not in control. Thank you. And it is such a good thing because we do not know how things will turn out. I pray that you would use Scripture this morning as your Spirit applies it to us to cause us to trust you. May we meditate on these proverbs of bad things that ultimately end up being good things to remind ourselves that you are causing all bad things to end up for good. You will wipe every tear from our eyes. Like Joseph, we will hardly remember the hardship of the past. So great is the joy of our salvation. Father, help us to remember and be transformed by the Proverbs about the weaknesses of wisdom. We can't understand it all. We can't figure it all out. Even as science changes so rapidly that what was right for my parents to give me when I was a baby changed to, to what we gave our children under the same advice to what people today are giving their babies, God, it changes so rapidly we actually don't know what's good in any aspect of life. But you are working all things. The things that we just randomly got right and all the other things that we got wrong because of the uh, total complexity of all things, Lord, help us to trust you rather than our own wisdom. And even as we seek it, Lord, I pray that we would fear you and obey your commands because that is true wisdom. It is living in the reality that is because you are ultimate reality. You are the creator of all things, not us. Forgive us, God. I pray for the times that we have thought that we are the authors of our own destiny, for the foolishness of thinking that we are moving the world along, and especially for the utter foolishness of thinking that that would be a good thing. We want to praise and glorify you this morning because you are in control, and that is so good for us. Transform our hearts and minds, we pray. For the sake of Christ's glory in this world. Amen.